think about a time that you were supposed to do something, but you ended up not doing it. And well, I was supposed to get my car tags, but you know, I didn't have the money, you know, and all this supposed to go to the dentist, but this and this, you know, and it's like, those are a lot of the reasons why the kids don't do what you want them to do. The same, the same reasons, you know, they, they don't have the resources to do it for whatever reason. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. TSBVI recently completed a free publication around the topic of planning behavior intervention. Lynn McAllister and Deanna Peterson from TSBVI Outreach dive into this topic with me and the complexity simply within the word behavior for children who are blind, visually impaired, or deafblind with potentially additional disabilities. Hi, I'm Lynn McAllister. I've worked here at TSBBI since 1982 in many different capacities, and currently I work in outreach with a focus on behavior and cortical visual impairment. Hi, I'm Deanna Peterson. I have been at TSBVI since 1997 as a teacher of deafblind for 20 years before moving here to the deafblind project as the early childhood consultant. Now, did you both come in as teachers or were you TAs first or residential? I was a cook. Oh. I wandered in living with my sister down the street and just walked up 45th because I didn't have a car and just walked in and they needed a cook. So I started working in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. And then on the dorm, then in weekends home, and then in the classroom. Worked your way through. Nice. I'm one of the few people on this campus that did come in as a teacher, <laughs> and that was mostly my only job. I was um, a master's degree in um, as a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing and then uh, after a few years gained um, my certification as a teacher of the visually impaired and for a couple years I was even a speech assistant here on campus. Huh. Interesting. So were you hired in a teacher of deaf hard of hearing role first? No, they hired me as a classroom teacher okay. with students who were deafblind and my entire career. That's who I, who I have worked with um, from 6 to 22 across programs that were um, for basic skill level, emerging communicators, all the way up to academic students who were proficient communicators and um, I just happened to be a teacher of the deaf and hard of hearing and was was functioning a lot um, at our, during ARDS in that role, but that was not my official role here at TSBBI. I wish we would have more people wander up the street for jobs here right now. <laughs> that would be great. Okay, well, we recently published a free document, as you both know very well, titled Guidance for Planning Behavior Intervention for Children and Young Adults with Deafblindness or Visual and Multiple Impairments. So can you briefly describe this resource and how it came to be? Well, our colleagues, Matt Schultz and Kate Hurst um, and, and 
in the document, they thank David Wiley, Mari Hubig, and Teresa Johnson for their contributions, saw a need to think about social emotional programming and how to support children who were demonstrating troublesome behavior, which they have reframed into thinking about children as being in distress. They outlined implications of being deafblind or having visual and multiple impairments and how that affects a child's ability to cope with situations that they might find scary or even perceive as threatening, whether they actually are threatening or not, and how by fostering proactive strategies that we can decrease those moments of distress and help them be more active participants in their educational programs. A lot of a lot of times when we get called out to school districts um, for whatever reasons that they list when on the on the referral request, really the reason uh, is because of the behavior of the student. And a lot of times we can walk in and see, well, that's you know caused really by the structure of the educational environment or by the interactions that are occurring. And so I'm glad Matt you know decided to like formalize a tool that we could use to help those teams. You recently did a coffee hour, which was great. And one of the quotes that you had put in your presentation was, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change by Dr. Wayne Dyer. So uh, do one of you want to talk a little bit more about what that means exactly? Like I said in the coffee hour, language is really impacts the way we feel about things, the language you use. So the example that I gave is if you say to someone, you know, I think you're incorrect about that, that has a different emotional impact than if I said you're lying, you know, even though it's conveying kind of the same message. And so if you look at a person and, you know, they're doing something and you say, oh, they're they're naughty, they're not compliant, they're spoiled is something I hear a lot too. That's going to impact your emotions toward that other person. Whereas if you say they're scared or they're lonely or they can't communicate what they want, those two things are just a different reframing in your mind that carries all that emotion with it. It reminds me of, as you know, my son is blind and has autism. And a while ago, I read the book, The Reason I Jump. It's written by a young man who, he wrote it when he was like 14 and he has autism. And he talked about that... This may be a bit of a tangent, but this is thinking about language, how he was heard people around him all the time saying that he likes to be alone. He likes to be alone. He likes to be alone. And when he could finally communicate what he was feeling through written language, he said, it wasn't that I like to be alone. I didn't know how to interact. And so... I started to think about that with my own son and other students, you know, that they are their most content when they're by themselves sometimes just because it's not distressing. They know what's going to happen next. They're in control of their environment. And so, but when you start thinking about it in the sense of they're, you know, they don't want to be alone. They just don't know how to interact. And so then when they're sort of forced into these scary situations, you see them in distress. And so just reframing that, the way you think about our students, I think, is just huge. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that and makes me think about the students here who are emerging communicators and the ways that 
they communicate are subtle and people might miss them. And so if they have repeated interactions where they are misunderstood or they are misunderstanding others, then I think a lot of times they can just give up, you know, because they're not feeling successful. They're not getting that connection. And sometimes even kids look like they are lashing out at adults and peers when really it's about wanting to connect and not having the tools to do it without explicit instruction, you know, modeling and role play and practice. Because if we want to get better at anything, we have to practice. I know you had also talked a little bit about within a functional behavior analysis, there's like the choices that you can pick about why a, a child is acting the way they are. And you mentioned that there's only like five choices. There's five reasons why all people behave. Do you remember what they are, Lynn? Um, attention seeking, revenge. Revenge. <laughs> revenge. You know, that's that's a, the main reason I behave all day is revenge. Um, like avoidance, <laughs> sensory stimulation, but yeah. just look in your special ed software because they're there. <laughs> I'm surprised there isn't even just an other option. I guess that would be too vague. But, you know, thinking about adding something in there scared, you know, and how powerful that would be to put that as an option or, as you said, lonely or some of those other things that we all feel throughout our day, but we express it. We internalize it, I guess. We don't express it probably as much as we should. Right. And we have the language to express it, you know, if we wanted to but all of the all of those things you know I'm tired I don't know what's going to happen you know when we do training sometime for staff we would ask them think about a time that you were supposed to do something but you ended up not doing it and I thought coming into that it was like well everyone's going to know why we were asking them that but no people were like well I was supposed to get my car tags but you know I didn't have the money you know and all this supposed to go to the dentist but this and this you know and it's like those are a lot of the reasons why the kids don't do what you want them to do. The same the same reasons, you know, they they don't have the resources to do it for whatever reason. Or I was I was looking forward to going on a date and he canceled at the last minute or you know, going to dinner with a with a with my best friend and she got sick. Those disappointments um, really are a, a letdown, um, but you know, like you said, we have the ability to cope, do something else right. nice for ourselves, or, you know, what, whatever it is we choose to do to make ourselves feel better. Uh, our students don't have those same abilities. Right. And Dee and I worked together for a long time on this PowerPoint that never really came to fruition, <laughs> but it's there. Um, and so one of the things we were going to do was um, do some role pl- adult role plays where, you know, say a woman's sitting at the table like she's doing paperwork or something and she just like throws it across the room and gets up and screams at her husband and her husband says um okay I'm I'm gonna walk away now and I'm gonna give you like three minutes and when I come back I want you to be calm and sit down in this chair and so then he leaves and then the the same situation, but the husband comes up and says, gives you a hug. Are you okay? You know, I see you're stressed, whatever. And a lot of times with kids, we do that first thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're in, having this behavior and you're in distress, but I'm not going to think about it as distressed like I would my husband. Yeah. You know, I'm going to walk away and leave you alone to cope. Whereas really when kids are acting like that, I mean, they're crying for help. 
Yeah, and there's so much research and science coming out now about not just about social emotional learning, but about developing resilience. And one of the things that I have learned that has really helped me shift, you know, that thinking from willfully acting out to distress is that before we can self-regulate, before we can expect students and other people to self-regulate, we are wired to need people to help us do that, to co-regulate, to get that hug, or, you know, even somebody just sitting close to us, you know, to, to feel that we're being heard and, you know, someone is connecting with us in a way that helps us to calm down and cope. You were talking about um, behaviors in adults. <laughs> And I, last night we were lucky enough to get to go see Hamilton and I decided to park in the parking garage there. And uh, after the show, everybody goes to the parking garage and I saw abhorrent behavior in adults that were stuck, you know, like you can't get out of your spot. Everybody's trying to leave. It's not what you expected. The show's over. You want to get in the car. You want to go. Just thinking about that and anytime we're in situations that are out of our control or not what we're expected we also see distress. <laughs> it was, I mean, there was not coping mechanisms in play for everybody. So it's just, uh, I'm sure we've all been in traffic. Isn't that funny? So there's this bias. Uh, it's called the actor-observer bias. Mm. And it's a bias that when we act in certain ways, we see it at, because of outside circumstance. So if I'm you know, in a new town, you know, I'm traveling and I have, oh, there's my exit. I have to cut across like four lanes of traffic. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not used to this town. Da, 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 da. But when we see other people behave, we consider it part of their personality. And so like if you're driving and someone cuts across, you're like, you so-and-so, you know, you're a horrible driver. It's like them. But it's never like you when when you behave, right? It's just because of this outside stuff. So, so and I think that's a lot of behavior when, when um, you look at someone who's behaving, you know, like someone's laying on the car horn or something, you think, you know, you're a terrible person or, you know, what's wrong with you, although you do those same things sometimes. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the need for this document and why it's important, but how do you see it being used in classrooms or even beyond the classroom? And how do you think you might support teams that want to try to implement a new approach? A lot of people were getting wind of this document. It took some time to get it finished and get it up on the website. And families were the first people who were reaching out and saying, we need this kind of tool to help think about how we can support our kids and how we can increase their moments of joy, decrease their moments of distress. And it's written for evaluating classrooms and programming and developing strategies that specifically can be used in the classroom to address four innate psychological needs that everyone has the need to feel safe, the need to feel successful, independent, and connected. And those universal needs translate 
beyond the classroom, obviously. To be healthy in our minds and our bodies, we need those kind of feelings. And teachers and school teams are interested in supporting their students proactively and thinking about how can they provide an ongoing structure that really prevents behavior from happening so that students can be successful and independent and connected and feel safe. Yes, it, it was meant to be um, a tool to be used before the team jumped to a behavior intervention plan, which is more formalized and <laughs> you have less choices, obviously, if you're, if you're following your software. It emerged out of the research of Desi and Ryan out of Rochester. New York, under the theory of self-determination. It was also, we found an article, it was a kind of a little philosophical article about Maslow's hierarchy, and it questioned whether, like, the basic needs that are supposed to be the foundational needs, like shelter, food, water, it should be actually the basic need that comes before everything is connection, because you can't get those things by yourself, right, when you're a baby. And so really you need connection before you need even the physical things. Another source that Matt and when I mentioned all the people that Matt and Kate wanted to give thanks to, I forgot to mention families and students because they were also key in in the development of these ideas and this tool. And Matt and Kate looked also toward Harvard Center on the Developing Child, which we use a lot of their research, which wasn't based on or developed for the type of students who we work with. But when we think about how to apply those ideas, we get a lot a lot of information. And one of the things that we learned from them is that this idea of brain architecture and how we get to the top where we've got those executive function skills, where we can self-regulate, we can plan, we can attend. And at the bottom level, like Lynn was mentioning, we do have to think about connection. Before we can even develop language, we are developing ideas about language and connection. So the foundation for all learning growth development is this emotional, social emotional level of connecting. Right. And Deanna and I realized, you know, this this might be a hard paradigm shift, you know, for some teams. When they look at this document, they might be like, sounds great. I don't know how to do it. (laughs) And so Deanna and I are offering kind of a behavior guidance tool coaching model that would be free to teams. You would just go to our website under outreach, request a service, and then ask for training. And we would be happy to walk a team, including the family, through this process and then stay with them as they try out some strategies and then come back, you know, to a group. Did it work? Did it not work? What can we tweak to be more successful in the future? So we're really excited about that. Yes, it is a 10-step process. We would be really excited to help teams or just collaborate with teams to really think through what are the implications for their individual student of how their vision impairment or how being deafblind affects them individually. And then health concerns, really pinpointing what are the behaviors that they're seeing and when do they happen and what are a student's likes? There's so many other factors that influence 
um, our behavior and our students' behavior. So, And like Lynn said, there are a lot of things to think about and try and adjust and evaluate before we get to a point where we should be thinking about a behavior intervention plan that typically is how do we respond after a behavior has happened, after students in distress. It's too late at that point to really think proactively because we've sort of missed our opportunity and providing those supports on an ongoing basis that help those children, young adults and adults feel safe, connected, successful and independent. Harvard Center on the Developing Child has a lot of great information on resilience, which I think a lot of people are really gravitating towards because sometimes we think about people as being born resilient or not resilient and that being set for us, but really we can learn to be more resilient and we can we can help our students and our children learn to become more resilient and having one person who is responsive and helps us to feel affirmed and connected is the key ingredient in developing the ability to be resilient and face hardships, whether real or perceived, and behave in ways that other people find engaging and affirming, like um, establishes connection. Yeah, make people want to interact with us. I was recently doing some research on building resiliency in staff in a leadership role. You know, we've been through a rough year and a half. I don't think it's going to be, you know, <laughs> super sunny anytime real soon or, or what we were used to maybe ever. I mean, it could be a long time of change. And so one of the things that it talked a lot about was to build resiliency is you have to empower people to make decisions and to show that you trust them, that you have faith in them. And so, you know, I think this really applies to our students too. Here at TSBVI and all our programs, we're huge in to empowering our students. And I think it starts with building relationships so that they trust you to give them the tools to have those self-determination skills. But also by doing that, by giving them some control over their own lives, it builds resiliency because instead of having stuff happen to them or done for them, it not only is going to increase the joy in their life, but it's going to decrease the stress because they're going to have a say in what's happening around them as well. So... And, you know, some of that is common sense, I think, that we just don't think about. But those are the types of supports that are outlined in this document. People need to feel that they have a choice. People need to feel that they're trusted. And and so do our students. They need to feel like someone's got their back. You know, when they are in distress, what we need to do is increase our support and reduce our demand. And the more successes that they feel, the more resilient they they become. They're no different than we are. They are humans. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Because I had such a great time learning and discussing with Lynn Indiana, this has become a two-parter. 
Join us again on February 15th when part two of this conversation airs. Please check out our podcast description for links to resources. From TSBBI Outreach and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.